clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Purdue Pharma filed a bankruptcy case in 2019 seeking to contain and ultimately to address claims arising from Purdue's status as one of the preeminent causes of the opioid crisis in in the United States through deceptive advertising, encouragement of off-label use of its flagship drug OxyContin, and through fraudulent trade practices. The bankruptcy resulted in a complex web of heavily negotiated settlements and agreements, all of which hinged on one thing. Purdue's owners, the Sackler family, would put in more than $4 billion in cash, most of it going to the bankruptcy estate, some of it going to fund opioid abatement and treatment programs. In exchange for this contribution, if we're calling returning $4.3 billion to the company a contribution, the Sacklers demanded two releases. One release from the bankruptcy estate relating to the more than $11 billion in cash that the family took out of the company between 2008 and 2017. The other being a release from claims held by non-debtors against the Sacklers for the Sacklers' role in what Purdue did. These non-debtors could be individuals and families directly impacted by Purdue's deceptive marketing. It could be insurance companies who paid claims based on Purdue's deceptive practices. It could be states, attorneys general, or the federal government seeking payment under civil penalties or civil forfeiture laws relating to Purdue's acts. Those claims would also be barred, channeled instead to the bankruptcy estate. In September 2021, the bankruptcy court, after a lengthy hearing, approved Purdue's bankruptcy plan of reorganization built around this structure and approved these non-debtor releases, which were non-consensual and which had become somewhat routine in bankruptcy cases involving money coming in from outside the estate. The premise being, if they're going to give you a lot of money, they want to be done with this completely once and for all, period. Several states and groups of individual claimants immediately appealed that ruling to the U.S. District Court. A few days ago, the District Court undid it all in a ruling that not only puts the Purdue case into limbo, but also calls into question the constitutionality of every bankruptcy plan in every court where these non-consensual, non-debtor releases have been approved. Vince Sullivan, a reporter for Law360 and a former guest on this show, called the decision a seismic shift nearly certain to land in the U.S. Supreme Court and test a controversial tool that has long drawn fire for far exceeding its original intent. Okay, then. To help us make sense of all this, we're joined by Melissa Jacoby, the Graham Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law, Go Heels, where she specializes in bankruptcy law, contracts, commercial law, secured transactions, and the intersection of law and the social sciences. Professor, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it makes sense at the outset of this to, to talk about how we got here. And, and how we got here is probably two different conversations, one having to do with Purdue specifically, but more broadly, how did we come to use the bankruptcy system, system as a litigation management tool? The use of bankruptcy as a litigation management tool is a pretty recent invention. There were some revolutionary cases in the 1980s, the two that probably get rightly the most attention are the Johns Manville bankruptcy involving asbestos, which started testing the waters for this use of bankruptcy. And then there was the A.H. Robbins bankruptcy that involved the Dalcon Shield, a defective birth control device that caused a lot of harm to women. 
And in the aftermath of these cases, we've seen sexual abuse-related cases and various other product liability circumstances. And now we are in this bizarre moment where a massive national and indeed international public health crisis ends up in the center of a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And bankruptcy was really meant to address over-indebtedness and restructure debtor-creditor relationships. And it offers some extraordinary legal remedies you can't find anywhere else in the, our system. And uh, they are tempting workarounds to the rules of other courts and laws, if that's allowed to happen. And so some of that is what we're seeing in these mass tort cases. And and some of these workarounds were born in the asbestos cases. Is that right? I think that's fair to say, but the they've expanded over time and gotten a bit looser and looser in terms of the scope of protection that is offered during a bankruptcy while there's an effort to convince people to come to the table and come up with a settlement and compromise. And then after bankruptcy, where there may be claims released in perpetuity against parties who have very deep pockets, are not in bankruptcy themselves and do have the ability to pay. And the question is, what role should bankruptcy be playing in their legal liability? Should they be able to ride sidecar, basically, in the bankruptcy of, of another entity? Right. Well, and and so with that as the backdrop, uh, Purdue files its bankruptcy case. But, but long before it filed its bankruptcy case, it it did a lot of things. And, and its bankruptcy was not Purdue's first intersection with the legal process. Um, if we go back to 2007, there was a complex plea arrangement between the federal government, a number of state governments, and and Purdue. Do we want to talk about that as the starting point to this path to bankruptcy? Well, I might start even earlier, uh, and we won't get into the weeds too much. There's an amazing amount of resources now uh, the journalists have done an incredible job, and those criminal plea agreements in, in 2007 and 2020 tell us a lot more. But the evidence that Purdue's main drug that turned it from sleepy pharmaceutical company into uh, producing billions of dollars of profits uh, was highly addictive, and it was marketed as if that wasn't true, and uh, to a much broader range of people than it should have been indicated for. So we're talking in the mid to late 1990s is when a lot of these troubles have started and we're seeing many iterations since then. The problem's just gotten bigger and bigger, notwithstanding these efforts uh, through plea agreements to manage the situation, which often overcame the desire of some prosecutors to actually have trials and get more of this laid out and potentially to find uh, and show that individual Sacklers did have a lot of responsibility. So some of the resources that I've found really helpful on this are, uh, well, first of all, Dope Sick, the book by Beth Macy. It's been turned into a TV show on Hulu that, while it has fictional characters, is based very much grounded in the legal uh, issues in that earlier, uh, the lead up to that plea agreement um, they did a meticulous job in a lot of ways trying to uh, set the, make the ground, uh, the empirical facts and the backdrop accurate. Empire of Pain, 
of by Patrick Radden Keefe has been an incredible resource on the history of the Sacklers and and their role in marketing even before this case. Uh, and uh, since I'm listing things, uh, Ryan Hampton is someone who could give the, a different inside scoop in his book Unsettled. He was on the creditors committee of this bankruptcy. He quit and uh, he has published a book about his experience in, on working on this case from the inside. And just so, so we we all understand exactly what they did. So, when when we talk about off label use and an improper use of of an opioid, the the company creates this drug. They te- they they test it subject to FDA regulations and oversight. They go to the FDA. They ask for approval, and the FDA says yes, we'll give you approval to market this drug for this purpose. And in the case of opioids and pain relievers, often that purpose is limited to use when there is a highly aggressive, highly painful, and fairly narrowly defined range of disease. And, and, and once the drug companies started making inroads in that regard, a, a lot of the companies started engaging in practices that, where they would convince doctors to prescribe it for reasons other than that narrowly defined range of aggressive disease. And so you would take a drug that was designed to treat pain experienced by patients fighting a very serious form of cancer and start using it for things other than that. And, and then once you've convinced the doctors to do that, you then have to convince the insurance companies to pay for it. And so they, the, the pharmaceutical company will, will present reasons why the insurance companies should reimburse to allow them to sell more and more and more pharmaceuticals. And sometimes those insurance companies are actually Medicare. And, and, and that's when we start getting the federal government involved. And, and that's where things sort of start falling apart is when you start using Medicaid dollars and Medicare dollars, and these then become rather than an insurance company's claim or a patient's claim, I shouldn't have been given this drug or I shouldn't have paid for this drug. It's now the company sought state dollars or federal government dollars to, to sell these drugs beyond what their approved use was. And, and that's what gives rise to some of the really big claims that were in the 2007 plea. Is that right? I think you've given a great, a great summary of what I understand to be the case. It's hard to make billions of dollars selling these drugs only to late-stage cancer patients. The whole mode had to be to vastly expand the number of people taking the drug and to increase the dosage that they they took and charge even more for that. Uh, those who are interested among your listeners in this, this story relating to Purdue may also be interested in the INSYS uh, situation, which also resulted in a bankruptcy, which I'm sure we don't have time to talk about today, but also involves some of the insurance concerns that you've raised because that was such a big source of the revenue. Right. And so in 2007, the company reached a plea deal with, I believe, all but one state's attorneys general and the federal government, uh, in which the the company pleads guilty to one felony count for falsely marketing OxyContin. It includes guilty pleas from some company, four company officers to misdemeanor charges of misbranding. The company pays $600 million and they agree to not do it again and to submit to monitoring for the next five years. And in exchange for that, everybody got off 
scot-free for everything that they did up to that point, which is 2007. Um, and, and so that would, I think, present sort of the opportunity for a clean start, would it not? Well, I will admit I am more knowledgeable about bankruptcy than I am about the other legal issues that infiltrate this long story of Purdue and the Sacklers, but one would have hoped that this indeed would be a new direction for the company when it turns out it was not, uh, right. and that there was an effort to really double down on aggressively marketing the drugs. And I think that this is why many who look at this story, and again, this goes beyond sort of how I approach thinking about this case and my, my scope of expertise, but the concern about complicity among federal regulators and how having a corporate monitor doesn't make a problem go away. And that some of these tools that were used were inadequate and society is paying the price and individual families are really paying the price. Ultimately, the amount, even in the, the settlement that was thought to be so miraculous that is now up for grabs, uh, a minority of the money was going to go to the families that are still dealing with the, the tragedies that have been associated with addiction to OxyContin and will be dealing with them for the rest of their lives. So it is a tragedy that 2007 wasn't a breaking point in a new direction, but a lot more money was made after that, that point and um, many became wealthy on that. And, and that actually becomes the crux of what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy case and what comes next for this opioid giant and its creditors with their bankruptcy plan derailed by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, that's B-I-Z, disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. So 2008 comes along. The company is at an inflection point. The Sacklers and start taking increasingly greater sums from the company. Up to that point, as the owners of the company, they had taken enough to pay their tax obligations on the company's profits, and they left, generally speaking, the rest of the cash in the company. They, they were already wealthy. But starting in 2008 and, and extending for about the next eight to nine years, they started removing pretty much all of the excess cash from the company and putting it into either other investments, other vehicles, or spendthrift trusts. Um, and it, it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about spendthrift trusts here because their existence in this and other large bankruptcy cases focused on individual liability it, it takes almost a superhuman-sized impact. Uh, do you want to talk to us about that a bit? Well, I can only say that uh, this case has required me to look up on a map where the bailiwick of Jersey is. I probably <laughs> should have known that already, but apparently that is a good place to stash your money if you don't want anyone to get it. Uh, I, I guess where I'd, I'd, how I'd approach this is to say it was a very uh, shocking moment in a court hearing a couple weeks ago when Judge McMahon, life tenure judge in the Southern District of New York was hearing an appeal of the Purdue bankruptcy decision that included the settlement that protected the Sacklers and the legal arguments were proceeding. And toward the end of the day, she asked, what about the money that had been stripped out of the company during the period that you Ted are talking about uh, and that she had done her own 
sort of looking so closely at the factual record and seeing how much more money was taken out in this more recent decade than before, and whether this indicates abuse that should not be tolerated or rewarded in a plan such as this that gives such extensive legal protection. And although that is not really the basis on which her very extensive written opinion ultimately lands, it was probably a very shocking event for people who were in the courthouse uh, and very quickly shifting gears into a set of questions about those practices and the hiding away of the money. And indeed, she allowed another round of briefing exactly on that question. Now, the thing with these, these trusts that are designed to not be reachable by other parties is that they have played a very big role in this settlement. Uh, in the bankruptcy court, there was, a, in the bankruptcy court's decision, he expressed frustration that some of these assets could not be reached and that it would be very, very difficult to ever try to collect some of these judgments against the Sacklers. Uh, but the fact of that difficulty was, a, was used as part of the analysis for why a settlement was warranted here. And that is a very common analysis that happens in bankruptcy. But what it suggests is that those who are able to hide their money away more creatively are more likely to get an extra layer of protection in someone else's bankruptcy case. And that's, and that's troubling. And again, the bankruptcy court recognized that that's troubling. Um, but, you know, here, here we are. Right. Well, and, and, and for, for those who do not live and breathe in bankruptcy, you know, when there, there, were, there were two issues with respect to the $10.4 billion that the Sacklers took out in those eight years. Um, the first is that almost half of it, $4.6 billion of it, was paid to various governmental entities as pass-through taxes. And as the bankruptcy court observed, those taxing authorities are never refunding that money. So that money's gone. You'll never, even if you get a judgment against them for whatever reason, you'll never get that $4.6 billion back. So that leaves a, a little bit more than half. And the mechanism by which the bankruptcy estate would claw that money back would be either a breach of fiduciary duty claim or a fraudulent transfer claim. The problem, as the bankruptcy court observed, was that first, the Sacklers were entitled to that money as the owners of the company. There were no other owners, so there were no other shareholders being damaged by them taking that money. The payments ended in 2017, and the company wasn't insolvent in 2017 or before that, so proving that those transfers made the company insolvent would be difficult, if not impossible, under the definitions of insolvency as they exist in the bankruptcy code. And the other prong of a fraudulent transfer claim that the, claim, the transfer was made to hinder, defraud, or delay creditors would be difficult because they could have just as easily been building a nest egg to deal with what they knew was the mounting litigation naming them as defendants personally. And there's nothing that says that they're not allowed to do that. And so as 20, yeah, well, as, as, as 2008 turns into 2014 and, and toward 2014 marches on towards 2019, these, these lawsuits continue to mount and it gets more and more difficult the more time goes on to, to stop this flow of money and, and, and ultimately to be able to successfully claw it back. So the bankruptcy court observed that it, was, it would have been difficult at best to achieve a victory that would have resulted 
in that $4.3 million coming back into the estate that they were willing to give, though I think it's reasonable to expect that the releases made it worthwhile for the Sackler family to put that money in, and they they surely perceived some degree of litigation risk that absent a settlement, someone was going to get some, some or all of that money. A great summary, Ted, uh, and I'm always glad to work with someone who's uh, comes at this from the financial advisor side and is is tracking the funds. Uh, so yeah, I and I, again, in terms of, it's interesting that Judge McMahon's ruling eventually on this, which we have yet to get into the the weeds on, in terms of the statutory authority to uh, release the Sacklers it really has to divide the types of claims into several different baskets. So, and that ties to something else that you mentioned Ted, about 2014. It's only fairly recently that the Sacklers have been named, uh, I think as defendants individually in cases. And the, the issue that judge McMahon ultimately, uh, captures in her opinion is really about those direct claims that third parties have against another third party for their own acts or omissions that violate the rights of that, that, that creditor, not that they harmed the corporation, but that they harmed that creditor because of something they did directly. So there are a lot of different kinds of claims flowing through this case. And that's what leads people to say, it's very complex, it's very complex. And certainly it is, but it is one thing to say that the bankruptcy estate that Purdue Pharma and some of the other creditors can decide to say, you know what, we're never going to win this fraudulent transfer action, or it will be an uphill battle. We will spend so much money litigating it and assuming we could actually collect some of this, we don't know. And it's another to say, but independent actions that other parties have, that states have, that private citizens have to sue the Sacklers uh, not for what, not for looting the corporation per se, but for other things that they've been sued for, uh, is a different matter, and that puts it in a different legal bucket for purposes of Chapter 11 and purposes of what is is lawful to have in a plan. So at least that's the way that Judge McMahon ends up slicing it. There may be courts that go farther than that of being critical of non-debtor releases, but that's that that's a divide that she she emphasizes. And and it, it occurs to me that the order confirming the plan and the the now overturned, um, or, or I should say, and the order overturning the confirmation of the plan are both really thorough exercises in legal scholarship. Because where there was really no strong guiding precedent in the Second Circuit, which is where the Southern District of New York sits, and, and the court that adjudicated the bankruptcy case the bankruptcy judge kind of went through and and gave a wide tour of of national case law on that subject the issue of non-consensual non-debtor third party releases of direct non-debtor claims and in response to that the district court went went through an equally if not more broad analysis of national circuit case law on on those specific topics as well in in rationalizing its decision. So if if one really wanted to take a a grand tour of 
of where the the different judicial circuits are on this issue. Both of those opinions, I think, tell two very different stories using the same basic facts. They do. And both judges worked incredibly hard on this case. We're very familiar with the factual record as well as the law in this area. And so both opinions are absolutely worth reading. They are quite different both in where they come out, but even where they, how they frame the questions that they are, they are looking at. And what's so remarkable about the district court's order, and again, this is when we are on the appellate track, we're talking about, at least in most circuits, judges who don't live and breathe bankruptcy in Chapter 11 every day. They're doing a whole mix of cases, and which makes it all the more incredible that Judge McMahon got the facility with the record as well as the case law including nationally, as she did, but is framing the issues somewhat differently. And I think that's important because, again, she even said in the oral argument on appeal about whether the plan was lawful, that she really encouraged the parties not to focus on the money that would go to opioid abatement. She had read all the papers. She understood what the plan was intending to do for the most part, but to talk about why this would be allowed to happen in a bankruptcy court and under bankruptcy law. And while given how it's come out, uh, we see it is not surprising that both Purdue Pharma uh, representatives, such as their, their board chair, talks about appealing the decision, which of course is understandable, um, but also talks about how this decision is going to deprive communities of much needed abatement funds um, but I think we have to get real and in context about this, given the scope of the opioid crisis and what's necessary for abatement. Uh, now, of course, every dollar counts, but the Sackler's contribution over 10 years, unfortunately for everyone, is a drop in the bucket for what is necessary to effectively uh, abate the opioid crisis. Now, there are also a lot of families who are very much in need of money from what has happened uh, to their to their families from opioid overdose and addiction. Uh, but uh, Judge McMahon, while I think she very much appreciated the necessity arguments and how this money could very much be used constructively, that that was not she wasn't, her job was not to try to keep this deal together, but to try to figure out whether the courts had the authority to give such legal protection to the Sacklers when they were not themselves bankrupt. Where would you find that authority? And she did a very searching analysis of many circuit court opinions that are the precedent in many places. And lo and behold, she found what I think a lot of us have tried to get people to see, but not always as successfully as she has, that when you dig into the weeds of these opinions, they don't give as much authority as many people kept saying they did. It was a bit of a whisper down the lane problem to say, oh, well, sure, releases are allowed in this circuit and cite these various opinions. When you look at those opinions closely, they often have not done that. Uh, they have, might have said there might be a case sometime that warrants a release, uh, but this isn't it. And here's why. And often are uh, saying a release is not lawful. Now there are, she also talks about cases that have more expressly uh, let a release exist right. um, and therefore not, not invalidated it. But she 
showed why the facts of those cases were quite different or that they hadn't really hit on the the issues squarely or that other law has changed in the meantime that cast doubt on the viability of those opinions. Right. So well, it was an extraordinary effort there. And that's why I, I uh, digressed perhaps too much in, in talking about that, but she <laughs> no, really that's okay. flipped the script on how people are going to talk about what the law is in this area. Well, we're talking with Professor Melissa Jacoby of the UNC School of Law about the messy reality that is non-consensual releases in Chapter 11 cases, particularly the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to us at comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages for our from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the complexities of releases in Chapter 11 cases and the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy with Professor Melissa Jacoby. When we broke, we were talking about uh, kind of broadly the, the, the landscape that takes us to this district court decision that says that the bankruptcy court approved plan in the Purdue Pharma case uh, was was not properly approved and 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 is thus overturned. And so baked into this plan was a contribution of $4.3 billion over 10 years from the Sackler family that would go to fund some creditor recoveries, some opioid victim recoveries, 
and more broadly, opioid abatement programs nationwide. And, and we were talking before the break about how even at $4.3 billion going entirely to abatement programs, that does not move the needle on nationwide abatement programs at all. But getting back to why a bankruptcy court would find itself in the position to give these releases, what the basis for these releases lives in two sections of the bankruptcy code, and they are sections 524G and section 105. And, and uh, Professor Jacoby, Section 524G arose from the asbestos cases and, and and really says that a court can authorize an injunction barring third-party claims in cases arising from the sale of asbestos. Is that right? So in the 1990s and 1994, Congress enacted what we might call the Manville Amendments, which basically said the way that John's Manville set up is, its asbestos bankruptcy is okay and that others could do it. Now, the irony is that even in the asbestos con context that they have not always gone so well. The cases have been very messy. They have gone on a very long time. Many of the trusts have been sort of bankrupt themselves uh, because of the, uh, both lack of prediction of the value of the claims and concerns about how the money gets handed out. But in any event, Congress authorized that. And it's also more limited in some respects than some of the, the, the global settlements we see in both asbestos cases and in other kind of cases. In other words, the 524G model is, is a more streamlined idea of how you could use bankruptcy as litigation management for asbestos. Now, Judge McMahon in the district court opinion showed in her analysis or found in her analysis that not that even though the the language doesn't cast a negative implication on the on the ability to do it elsewhere that she rejected Purdue Pharma's argument that Congress really wanted the law to continue to percolate on these other issues so she read it as that 524G does not tell us whether or not other parts of the bankruptcy code authorize a bankruptcy case to give legal uh, protection to someone like uh, the Sackler family. That takes us to section 105, uh, which is either very broad or very narrow, depending on whom you talk to, but the <laughs> Supreme Court thinks it's narrow. So, it basically only says that the court may issue any order, process, or judgment that is necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of this title. Now, if we interpreted that broadly, that would open up the whole world. Bankruptcy absolutely would be an alternative justice system. Well, and, th and, and that's that one of the reasons why, uh, why certainly bankruptcy professionals often offhandedly refer to Section 105 as the God Clause, because it lets ah. the court do whatever they want the court to do if they can just convince the court to do it. Right. And especially if you do not have to be insolvent to file for bankruptcy relief, right? then, wow, this court is very powerful. And it's a little bit hard to imagine that from a very tiny clause in the Constitution that established the bankruptcy power. We're not going to get into federalism today too much, but we still, it's, uh, and other separation of powers and limited, limited federal authority, but it's a big stretch when you start thinking about 105 in this broad way. Right. Now, 
We know that it is on the Supreme Court's mind in a couple recent cases, and the way that I think you and I and others have put it, including members of the Supreme Court, is if Congress is silent on an issue in a law, does that mean you can't do it or that you can? And those who advocate for a lot of flexibility, and these are in the biggest cases for the most part, my sense is that individuals in the average consumer case, small business cases, they're not given nearly as much leeway to do these things. And that's a whole other whole other problem I see in terms of fairness, right. uh, but that they argue that, uh, that well, if the code is silent, that means it's, it's probably fine. And of course, that doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense when we come down to specific situations. And Judge McMahon, in her opinion, I think addresses that quite explicitly. So she finds that 105 is not sufficient to authorize this very significant power that courts have been exercising. Well, and, and really, with, with that discussion of Section 105 versus Section 524G, you can, you can cast this entire case as a battle between two philosophical approaches to jurisprudence, generally, but bankruptcy specifically, which is, on the one hand, uh, Purdue and, and the bankruptcy court landed on the side of if it if the code doesn't say you can't do it then you can do it and judge mcmahon very clearly landed on the opposing side which is if the code doesn't say you can do it you can't and as you point out this is this is headed for the supreme court and the supreme court has already addressed this issue in 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 fits and starts but it it, it strikes me that as the Supreme Court is becomes more and more political, um, where they land on this issue is very dicey. Because if you're going to say this about bankruptcy law, then you're going to have to start applying it to other areas of the law. And if if you take a court that is increasingly populated by people who who tend to take an anti-regulatory originalist view, it would be surprising for them to say, "Well, if it's not there, you can't do it." So I may be a little bit more skeptical that this particular case is going up to the Supreme Court than others. It, it might. Uh, we have a lot of burning issues in the bankruptcy system that many of us are often sure, surely they're going to take up a case on X or Y right. or Z, and then they don't, and they don't again, and they don't again. Maybe it will happen this time, but I agree with you, Ted, that the way that Judge McMahon pitched this is very significant and not limited to the release context. And that's why even if the Supreme Court doesn't take it up, it is a big deal for Chapter 11 practitioners, restructuring professionals on other issues that they tend to do regularly but are not found in the code to say that if there isn't statutory authorization for it, you cannot do it. Um, now, I think that in reality, if we looked at other issues, we'd have to do more work than that because she could have ended her decision a lot more quickly if she just said, I can't find anything that says X. She did an exhaustive analysis of why the various provisions don't say that. Right. But she has set up a, a larger arsenal of arguments to push back against 
practices in Chapter 11 that really aren't authorized in the code, that really do encroach on so many other different areas of the law and do need some, some guardrails, but are too often presented to a court as take it or leave it. No one will get any money if we don't do it this way. And time is running out. It's an emergency. And courts are in a very uh, difficult spot in that situation. And frankly, that's why appellate practice uh, and getting more bankruptcy issues appealed is so important. So someone else who is not in the thick of it all the time can say, I don't have to take the direct heat for this, but I need to look at this in a more global way. And as we know, so many issues in Chapter 11s do not get appellate review on the merits because parties quickly put their plan into effect or get a sale quickly put into effect. And then based on some other case law that the Supreme Court should review, it's deemed to be moot and courts don't end up reviewing the issues on the merits. And so a lot of practices in chapter 11, which may have started very well-meaning uh, in intent uh, to try to make the best of a bad situation are on shaky legal footing, but they don't get reviewed. Right. Well, and, and, and by way of explanation, the, the mootness issue in bankruptcy, bankruptcy deals primarily, if not exclusively with money, and money coming in from one place from one place and going out to other places, you know, money coming in from the estate and going out to creditors. And often there will be broad procedural things that have to happen, like a company changes hands or divisions are sold or mergers happen in order to facilitate the money going out to creditors. And if somebody raises an objection to that or an appeal to that, often the thing that has to happen for the money to go out has happened or has substantially happened. And and so what happens is you end up in a situation where the court may look at it and say, well, sure, you've got an argument, but this cake is already baked. We we can't, in any practical fashion, separate it back into its component ingredients and give the person who owned the sugar but didn't want to contribute it this way their sugar back. It, the, the eggs are scrambled, the cake is baked, whatever kitchen-related analogy you want to use, the damage is done, and, and so you're simply too late. And so equitable mootness becomes this kind of looming giant over any type of objection to a bankruptcy plan. And, and in this case, knowing that an, uh, that an appeal was coming, uh, Purdue agreed not to consummate the plan, which I, I don't know why that, what they would have done in such a short period of time because this was a, a breathtakingly fast appeal as appeals go. But, uh, but, but Purdue agreed not to move forward with that to try and render any appeal equitably moot um, purposefully. Other other debtors have not done that. Well, I would uh, I'd add a little bit of a footnote to that. I think that's it, it's true that things unfolded in Purdue differently, but I think they were also under a wider range of constraints, some of which had to do with a the 2020 plea agreement uh, mm -hmm. and having to get the criminal plea agreement settled that taking that setting up the trust was going to take time so i do want to suggest that uh that it is true that purdue pharma fought very hard against stays of the confirmation order saying there was no way it could actually get this plan implemented quickly mm -hmm. uh, but uh you know the the appeals were in general should always be filed timely according to the rules of procedure. The issue right. is often that the the 
court hearing the matter doesn't expedite it. And that's why uh, it is especially incredible that Judge McMahon mastered the record as as so thoroughly as she did, as well as the law, and wrote such an incredibly thorough decision in that period of time. Uh, I will say that many parties that were opposing this plan actually didn't want it to go to the district court. They wanted it to go directly to the Court of Appeals and thought, this this case raises such big issues. Shouldn't we have a three-judge panel, uh, the layer just below the Supreme Court, review this? And there's a procedure for that in the law. Purdue Pharma fought that very hard. They did not want that. They may be regretting that now, uh, but it was a decision on their part to advocate strongly for the ordinary process to go to the to the district court first. Now, that may be uh, more assurance that she was going to rule quickly, uh, but perhaps it, this didn't come out quite the way they expected. Right. And so the district court came back and on the three issues that were up on appeal, um, the, the, the court needed only rule on one, which was that a bankruptcy court does not have statutory authority to grant non-consensual non-debtor releases to third parties on direct claims. And so what that essentially does is it eliminates one of the two releases that the Sacklers demanded in order to put in the $4.3 billion. And that is get us out of, uh, from under this shadow of this litigation brought by parties that are not the debtor. And, and so now we're left with a, a bankruptcy case that will continue to burn professional fees at astronomical rates as these large cases often do. The federal government has a $2 billion administrative claim stemming from the past violations, the 2020 plea agreement and the 2007 plea agreement and its claims in the current bankruptcy. And that claim comes ahead of anybody other than the, the, the secured lenders. And there's not, compared to that, a lot of secured debt in this case. The problem is that as part of any bankruptcy plan, the, the debtor has to submit a liquidation analysis that shows what would happen if the company were to simply liquidate. You know, why are creditors better off with this with the, the proposed plan instead of just a chapter seven liquidation? And that chapter seven liquidation analysis shows only $1.8 billion in value. So the company in liquidation is uh, allegedly worth less than the US government's administrative claim of $2 billion, which means that after that, if this, com- if this company liquidates, there is nothing for anybody other than the US government who is not going to invest this money in individual claimants or abatement programs or trade creditors or anybody else. And so that sets the backdrop for the negotiations that I think will almost certainly be happening probably starting over the, this past weekend, which is, you know, what do the various claimants really want here? And I, I don't know that I've heard a, a clear answer to that articulated. Have you? I imagine the parties in the case themselves were really scrambling, even if they thought there was a slight possibility of reversal. They probably had in mind a much narrower set of recommendations about Um, more showings about necessity or how the funds, who's providing the funds or something like that. This went way broader. Now, it still is only the truly direct claims that are not derivative of harm to the company. So there does have to be more parsing of 
exactly what kind of liability we're talking about in terms of all of it. And I'm sure they were working on that as well. I look at the the U.S. government claim a little bit differently in that it does seem like it's more of a moving target than was just suggested, and I don't know for sure. But let's remember, first of all, that settlement was cobbled together on the last days of the Trump administration by a different set of DOJ lawyers that the DOJ has come out in favor of uh, and uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has said he agrees with essentially Judge McMahon's decision that mm -hmm. these kinds of releases are not lawful. And that they were, even before that, though, on board with support, they volunteered to subordinate their claims to other kinds of, of creditors. And as you say, there, I think there's no secured debt in this case. So it is very different than most Chapter 11s. Right. Um, I think there are a lot of different. So what's going to happen with that, uh, the DOJ claim or the U.S. government claim, I think could still be very much up for grabs uh, and how that money whether it stays that amount, we still haven't had that the plea hearing in which a district judge in New Jersey rules on that. So uh, there's there's a lot of different. It's possible that more could move on that. I also feel compelled to note that at least some of the personal injury claimants in the case had fought during the case for a plan that did not include the Sacklers and did not include releases and thought that mm -hmm. there was something to be made of that. Right. And we know bankruptcy is always creditor versus creditor, but this case, it turns out, especially from Ryan Hampton's book, Unsettled, that uh, the states might have been a bit, or some of the states might have been a bit aggressive with the personal injury claimants and not wanting them to have some money. So I don't know how much that is going to open up. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of, there, we know that restructuring professionals are very, very creative and can find a lot of different ways to get to different places. I can also imagine they're preparing hard for the appellate process. But I do want to get back to what we were saying before about, you know, in a situation where a crisis for which Purdue and the Sacklers may have been the grounding that's now costing between, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, between 53 and 72 billion a year, a year. Uh, and that's something that Judge McMahon cites in her decision. I, I, you know, there are a lot of ways this legal dispute can work out, but I think we do need to put it in the larger context. This decision right. is very significant because of it opens up some questions in the law that we need to be talking about in how we use chapter 11. You know, it, it, it bears, it bears mentioning, I think, and you and I talked about this earlier today, it, there's always this question of, of, you know, who are these claimants? And, you know, some of them are children who were born, who, who will be subjected to neonatal addiction syndrome because their mothers were addicted to opioids and therefore they're born addicted to opioids. Some of them are, are people who are using it recreationally and get hooked, but far more of them are, are just regular people. I mean, I had, I had heart surgery five years, six years ago. And when I was in the hospital, my nurse told me, if you want a painkiller, when we ask you how much it hurts, you'd say six or seven. So I said six or seven. And then they sent me home with a bottle of painkillers and a 30 day supply. And at the end of those 30 days, I felt great. I detoxed off of caffeine 
while I was on painkillers and recovering from, from a triple bypass. But on the 31st day, when the medication ran out, I started waking up in the middle of the night, shivering and with the bed soaked in sweat. And that happened about five days in a row. Went to my cardiologist a few days later and we explained to her what happened. And she said, oh yeah, you were going through withdrawal from opioids. So at no point did I wake up thinking, oh my God, I need a pill. I didn't know what was happening. I was just reacting to something. And that's what it was. So if somebody who has no desire to be on those pills can get chemically addicted to them and go through withdrawal after 30 days, imagine what happens with longer exposure. These are the people who are dealing with this type of after effect. For those who don't believe in dope sickness and the idea of these severe withdrawal syndrome, uh, symptoms, I do recommend again the Hulu show Dope Sick that does an incredible job showing that through some amazing acting. Uh, the effort to demonize people who have become addicted to prescription opioids that were often somewhat aggressively uh, suggested to them and suggest that this is some sort of moral failing or that this is all about getting high in recreational use have not been paying enough attention to this problem. So this is an issue that is not just about money. It is about real people. It is about the children you've mentioned, many children who have lost their parents to an opioid overdose and are being raised by other relatives. Uh, the, the, the human cost is so enormous here and nothing in this plan or any sort of opioid abatement should be based on the idea of demonizing the people who have become addicted to this drug. It gets us nowhere. We only have a short time left, Professor, but in 30 seconds, what do you think the debtor's arguments on appeal will be? Well, they will have to work very hard before the Second Circuit to explain either why the existing uh, explanation of statutory authorization is incorrect or to encourage the Second Circuit to adopt, <laughs> adopt some, different, some different rules than they've said before. As Judge McMahon pointed out, and she basically pleaded with the Second Circuit to look at them themselves and invited them to give, cast their own view on this to say, we see a path to finding there is authorization for these releases. We don't have time to talk about it. There's a constitutional element to this as well uh, that was not central to her decision, but could make some big ripples in bankruptcy practice um, that I would imagine they will also argue about, but I think they will squarely most have to focus on that, they, that this is legally permissible under the current bankruptcy code. Well, and that will have to be the last word. Professor Jacoby, thank you so much for joining us. Melissa Jacoby is the Graham Kinnan Professor of Law at UNC Law School. You can find her on Twitter at Melissa B. Jacoby, and we'll put links to her bio, CV, and SSRN page under the episode notes on this show's website. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Emily Stern and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network.
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.